from PRX. This is Studio 360. I'm Kurt Anderson. And I'm sitting on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial. This first level of garden. This is Thomas Jefferson's vegetable garden. I like to have the roasted chicken paste. Very well done. Editing is all about timing. I try to get a little bit away from the actual subject. You must get sick of your own voice, right? Studio 360. With Kurt Anderson. Today on Studio 360, we are looking at country music, past, present, and future. In my Nebraska childhood, I had a soft spot for country music, partly because my parents so disapproved. Later, at college and afterward, my fandom continued, partly because the Eastern elite didn't get it or disapproved. And it's interesting that so much great country music was always performed by women. Patsy Cline... Loretta Lynn, Tammy Wynette, and Dolly Parton, whom I once drove for hours to see. How interestingly unlike rock music that was, where women were largely excluded from superstardom. And mainstream country remained female-friendly that way into the 1990s, with gigantic stars like Shania Twain. And Faith Hill. Reba McIntyre, and more. But these days on country radio, the big hits are by men, what they call bro country. In fact, this past December, all of the top 20 artists on Billboard's country airplay chart were men, which had never happened before. And so what the heck did happen? Our bona fide expert on this subject is Julie Height, a country music journalist in Nashville who just wrote an article in Slate with the headline, The Women of Country Have Had Enough of Playing by Nashville's Rules. So, Julie, as I've explained, women used to dominate country. Why did that peter out at the turn of the century? You know, I think that one thing that laid the groundwork for it was what happened with the Dixie Chicks in the Mm. early aughts. You know, you had this group that got in trouble because, I mean, Natalie Maines made a very offhand remark criticizing then President Bush in front of a British audience at a concert. Just so you know, we're on the good side with y'all. We do not want war. We're ashamed of President United States. That was in the era before... Right when the Iraq War had Yeah, exactly. And then uh, the Dixie Chicks sort of refused to apologize for speaking their minds. So that just didn't sit well with a lot of people who make programming decisions at mainstream country radio. And, you know, they parted ways with the format for good. And I think that maybe that had a little bit of a chilling effect in terms of women in country who weren't afraid to be themselves or speak their mind, you know. But really, there was this thing called Tomato Gate that happened right. in 2015. Heard about that. Radio consultant Keith 
Hill said that radio stations, in order to get good ratings, should not play female artists too often and definitely not two female artists back to back. I play great female records, and we've got some right now. They're just not the lettuce in our salad. The lettuce is Luke Bryan, Blake Shelton, Keith Urban, and artists like that. The tomatoes of our salad are the females. This gave birth to Tomato Gate. That wasn't a new idea. He was spelling out the way that people were already thinking and things that were already being put into practice. I mean, I think it became so scandalous because it really struck a nerve. It was galvanizing. So if country radio is no longer uh, the, the path that it was uh, for for country women uh, to become successful, uh, well, I mean, we're no longer dependent on terrestrial radio. What about, uh, you know, all the other ways to get your music out? Is that, does that work for women? I mean, the rules are a little bit different when you're trying to build a career in that world because uh, terrestrial radio does hold more sway in country than it does in other genres at this point still. It's interesting that country is still rooted in terrestrial radio in that conservative way. Is it also true that uh, the country music performance circuit is more of a circuit than other genres? You see a lot of artists kind of developing by being opening acts on arena tours, you know, opening for bigger stars. So there, too, say you're a a rising woman in the field, you know, trying to find your footing. If you can't get good slots on tours, then that makes it more of a challenge, too. But also, there have been a lot of women recently like Maren Morris and Cam and Casey Musgraves who have decided to open arena tours for male British pop stars instead. So let's uh, listen to some music. And you mentioned Casey Musgraves, who's a big star. This is her hit from from last year called High Horse. That's Casey Musgraves, so poppy. And, and like, I listened to that song a couple times, and I thought, okay, if it didn't mention John Wayne and didn't have a giddy-up in it, I, I, I mean, I, I wouldn't, it, it's not, it doesn't sound like a country song to me, except for those sort of signifiers, right? Well, I mean, country did have its disco moment. Uh, if you look back in Dolly Parton's catalog right, and right. Ronnie Millsap's catalog. But yeah, I mean, for, for Casey Musgraves in particular, she was pushing her sound. You know, there are, there are other tracks on the album that have a little bit more of her particular angle on a vintage Western sound. But people also really responded to tracks like that one from her, you know, her disco side, you know, obviously was was a, a breakthrough album last year because it won CMA album of the year. And then it's up for a Grammy in right. the album of the year, the all genre album of the year category. Right. Which, so which doesn't yeah. happen very often. I mean, we've looked back, you look back at the Grammy nomination history. I mean, she's here she is up against Cardi B and Drake. I mean, that doesn't happen very often where a country album is just one of the main albums. Yeah, you're right. It is not a common occurrence. The song that you just played did not get radio airplay, but, you know, that was sort of beside the point. 
I mean, she had great visibility and and all of this success and attention, and you know, and, and appears on, on Saturday Night Live and and exactly is a yeah, social media figure, TV yeah, bookings, yeah, yeah. and without even worrying about not getting radio airplay. So I think she has given a lot of artists permission to find alternate routes. Right. Uh, I want to play a, a very different kind of artist, uh, Ashley McBride. I get these calls out on the road Heard your song on my radio We always said you'd make it big And I tell all my friends I knew you back when So don't forget all us little folks And when you crash and burn Remember we told you so And then the lights come up That's Ashley McBride. Uh, the song is Girl Going Nowhere. Uh, now that seems uh, beautifully, nicely classic. Uh, could have appeared in, you know, any year of the last, I don't know, 50, 60? Um, right, right. <laughs> and she's a singer-songwriter. And and I read you talking about the, you know, singer-songwriter thing. And, and it hasn't been as much a an obligatory thing or a standard thing to be – to write your own songs if you're a country music performer. And so that's another way that she and other of these women in country can <laughs> ha- ha- go a different way. It's not just, oh, here, here's a, here's a hit that somebody wrote for me. I'll sing it, right? Absolutely. The mentality in Nashville was that either you were a professional singer or you were a professional songwriter, but those were two different gigs. And that has been a pretty drastic change. There are a lot of rising female voices in Nashville that started with publishing deals as professional songwriters and then, you know, had some sort of realization that what would work best for them was to try and do their own stuff. What would be the most satisfying or the most likely to find an audience or, you know, or maybe that no one was likely to record the stuff that they were writing. So, you know, so the the pivot toward toward doing their own thing and, and kind of putting their own perspective out there and owning it as their own perspective. Um, another performer uh, you've, you've talked about, uh, Maren Morris, Uh, I want to play a bit of her song from a few years ago called I Could Use a Love Song. Usually a drink will do the trick Take the edge off quick Sitting in the dark with a shared cigarette Seeing eye to eye and heart to heart But maybe I'm just getting old Used to work but now it don't A long gone drive You know the kind where you take a turn And you don't but it clears your mind, a surefire cure. I need something stronger. I mean, that that song, what made it interesting hearing that come from a, a young artist in the country world was her vocal approach. I mean, she has a really big voice. Uh, with Marin Morris, you have one of the earliest artists in country to be singing in that low range and making it sound so much more casual. That's a huge change in the way that country artists sing instead of 
just belting or singing hard or or kind of projecting emphatically, you know, that I think it was a, a generational shift that she really helped usher in that that kind of more millennial sensibility of being um, deliberately casual and, and intimate and conversational in uh-huh. the way that she sang. And, and, and even though that's a very country-sounding song, I want to play a little bit of another thing she did, uh, another song she did last year uh, called In the Middle by this German producer called Zed. I mean, all Cynthian dance poppy and, and like, whoa, that, that really? That's the same artist. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, that definitely is an example of a successful crossover moment. That was a huge song and, you know, and lots of people heard it on a Target ad. Uh, but you know what else that song proves? It proves that, and th- I've seen uh, a lot of research that, that speaks to this, that it is often country artists who are women who have more crossover appeal or who are more uh, distinctly identifiable or who, you know, are more likely to get a place, a song in a, in a target ad or that sort of thing, you know, get branding opportunities. Hmm. Maren Morris can do a song like that and have a huge pop crossover moment and boost her visibility kind of across the board. But she can also, so long as she says that she still wants to be a part of the country world and doesn't want to leave it behind as Taylor Swift has, you know, she can kind of have it both ways, but it's sort of a, you know, a deliberate choice that an artist can make to make it clear that they're not um, disassociating themselves from country. Right. Well, you you talked about how 15 years ago the Dixie Chicks c- got banished, essentially, uh, from being a bit political uh, during the Iraq War. So here's Maren Morris and, and Casey Musgraves uh, saying progressive things about uh, uh, LGBTQ, uh, progressive things about gun control, and, and they're not banished. Yeah, I think I think that the, the atmosphere kind of across the board in terms of artists making quote-unquote social or political statements in Nashville right now is one of very gentle, uh, mild sort of expressions of live and let live tolerance. Julie Hyde, you have made me realize that there's all this activity below the giant superstar level that uh, makes me hopeful about this musical tradition and, dare I say it, about America. <laughs> we don't want monocultures in anything. And good that women women are the ones in country who seem to be uh, proving the virtue of that. Yeah, I think it will be. I will be very interested having, you know, watched particular things emerging last year. I'm going to be really interested to to see how they continue to play out in 2019. Well, you come back in 2020 and tell us how that worked out. I'll, I'll be happy to. Um, Julie Height, thanks very much. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. Julie Height is a reporter who lives in Nashville, and you can read her article we talked about at Slate.com. Coming up... 
I talk with a country star who authentically needs no introduction. <laughs> but you better introduce me anyway. The fantabulous Dolly Parton is up next on Studio 360. Heading for a train, feeling nearly faded as my jeans. Bobby Studio 360. On this hour of Studio 360, we are taking a long look at country music, where it's going, where it's been. I spoke with Dolly Parton in 2005 about her new record at that time, Those Were the Days. Of all things, covers of 1960s protest songs, which she released, by the way, at the peak of the Iraq War. We met up in her hotel suite in New York. Now, you have written literally thousands of songs. Yeah, well, I've been at it since I was a little bitty kid, and I'm getting up there. So, and I write all the time, so that that makes for a whole lot of songs. So you're still writing? Oh, yeah, I do it all the time. But this album is all cover songs of songs people like us grew up listening to on the radio. Yeah, the 60s and 70s was a great time. It was the sexual revolution. I still ain't sure who won, though, <laughs> on that one. But these are songs that uh, that I've loved and that have touched me and that I used to actually sing before I had enough songs of my own that were recognized by people when I would do shows on the road. Really? I would do some of these songs because nobody ever has enough of their own and people like to hear recognizable songs. So I thought, well, I should actually do these songs. Do you have a favorite track? Well, I love Where Have All the Flowers Gone an awful lot because I loved singing with Nora Jones and Leanne Womack, but I just love that song because it fits my voice really well. I love those kinds of songs, those old world Irishy kind of songs that kind of fit my voice well. And your DNA, maybe. And my DNA, yeah, it does. It goes back a long way. Young girls pick them I really like that one. I love uh, Twelfth of Never, getting to sing with uh, Keith Urban. That's the only song that's not from the 60s and 70s. That's from the 50s, I think 57, when Johnny Mathis had that out. But I wanted a really beautiful love duet to sing with Keith. I didn't want to just... Would you sing much more cheerfully and upbeat than Johnny Mathis did it? (laughs) Well, yeah, they say he did it as a prayer. But, of course, I wanted to have a little flavor of... of, to kind of dollyize it and to me it was like some of the other things I had done on the past albums Grass is Blue and Little Sparrow where I took a few of the old songs like uh, Shine and kind of put a little bluegrass flavor and a few things that they would lend themselves well to that up tempo where you play in a double time but you kind of still sing it slow I don't think it took away from the emotion of it but it's still kind of countrified it a bit and bluegrassed it just a little but it stayed in the loving feeling I thought or maybe I was just got a crush on Keith and just thought it sounded like that. Did to me. <laughs> you ask how much you I need you. Much I must, need. I explain. must I explain? I need you, oh my darling, like the roses need like the, the roses rain. Need the rain. You ask how long. Twelve, never. I'll still, I'll still be, be 
as I was getting ready to talk to you, I, I couldn't think of any other performer in my lifetime who is both so deeply authentic as a as a person, as a performer, and so flagrantly artificial at once. <laughs> is that I mean does that appeal to you that Well that? it must. I've been that all my life. I always said if you know there's must be some kind of a magic in the fact that I that I look totally artificial and that I'm totally real because it's true. But you know what? My artificialness uh, really comes from a sincere place. It, it was what a little country girl's idea of glamour was. And, you know, like the in my first impressions of people that I thought were, was pretty or beautiful, and we didn't have anything, and I certainly am no natural beauty, so if I got any looks at all, it's like something I painted on or bought. Or, but Marilyn uh, Monroe was the idea of feminine well, beauty when you were a those kid. Those types of people, but I, I had patterned my look after the town tramp in her own <laughs> town. It's true. But it was. I'm sure she was influenced by the Marilyns and all, but I just loved the, you know, Literally, just Literally, a town look. tramp in your town. Yes, yes, and that's the truth. And it's still. Was you she know, ever aware of this homage? Well, no, uh, but she was. She was really beautiful. She was blonde. She had all that yellow hair. She wore tight skirts and she had pretty legs. She wore high heels and she even had a pair of shoes, high heel shoes that were plastic and had plastic goldfish in the heels. And to a little child, when, when we did get to go to town out of the mountains, I just remember just being in awe of her and her red lipstick and her nails. And I just remember saying, I remember being in town with my mama one time, and I said, oh, she is so pretty. She is so beautiful. And mama said, oh, she's just trash. And I thought, that's what I want to be when I grow up. I want to be trash. Because I thought that was like a word meaning how you looked. So I grew up, and I was that. Not, I didn't become trash, but I looked like trash. But that is my look. I enjoy it. It makes me feel good. It, you know, and it's, that's important. If I feel comfortable, then I'm comfortable to do my work. And, and it's like my work is a separate thing. But I have an outgoing personality, and that look just seems to fit me. Now, your career has had lots of different chapters and ups and downs. Are, are there moments when you feel like, well, they the the media the public should have paid attention to that thing I did that was great why 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 did I fall off the radar then no you know what I look at my life I have been so fortunate and so lucky of course you always wish you could stay on the charts but you also know I mean look at all the great years I had 20 25 years I mean I was like really did well and and people were very kind to me and new people come along so you have to kind of move over but I'm still very serious about my work and I figure uh, that if I continue to do good work no matter how old I am they will eventually pick it up and play some of it at least here and there now and then but as I've often said I'll make my records even if I have to sell them out of the trunk of my car and it must be kind of freeing to be able to go and make a couple of bluegrass records that don't have to sell a million copies or make these you know 60s songs that don't have to sell a million songs to your Nashville audience it's true and I'm getting a lot out of that because now uh, I make jokes about it and I've said it before that I've finally uh, got rich enough to sing like I'm poor again <laughs> and be able to afford it because I own my own little label I record all these things I pay for them I lease them you know to label to distribute them but I own them they go back into my family's fund you know, to my estate. And uh, so I'm enjoying doing things like this particular album of songs I love. People, I want my fans to know 
the kind of stuff that I also like, not just that I wrote or, you know, so I'm really enjoying doing the bluegrass things, doing the mountain songs, because that stuff I love. If I could have made a living doing that in the early days, I'd have probably just have done that type of stuff. So I'm not in it for the money now. I used to be in it for the money because I needed to make a living, but now I've been fortunate to have Dollywood and a lot of other business things. But still, my music is my first love. It was a song that brought me out of the mountains. It was a song that built Dollywood. It was a song that has done everything, either one I wrote or one I've sung or one or both. So uh, I will never give up on the love for my music, and I will continue to do it from now on. Dolly Parton, thanks very much for joining me in Studio 360 today. Well, thank you for having me. It's always good to see you. Dolly Parton's latest album is the soundtrack for the new movie Dumplin'. Corn soda box of raisinets Velvet cushioned seats and soft armrests Best seat in my favorite movie house Start my dreaming as the lights go out up on the silver screen, I picture me. At Studio 360, we're always on the hunt for stories of people whose lives were changed by some work of art or entertainment, anything cultural. We collect them in our series called Aha Moments, such as this story that we got from, remember our theme? Willie Nelson. In Abbott, there were four churches, and uh, I lived within 100 yards of three of them. And there was a tabernacle that was just as close as from this where we're sitting to right out there, uh, where every summer I could sit there and hear every denomination in town come to their revival meetings where they would come and sing gospel and the guy would preach every night. So I got preached to in every denomination every summer. <laughs> and so I grew up in all that kind of stuff and it was really great. On uh, Sunday, there would be early morning Sunday. And then at noon, sometimes we'd have uh, all day singing dinner on the ground type thing. So it was all day church on Sunday. And then Monday night, I think was prayer meeting night. Wednesday was uh, visitation where you go around and visit people and try to get them to come to the church. And then the next thing you know, it's Sunday again. So the whole week was pretty much spent in church. No wonder we like to sing sometimes. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. A, a preacher up there in Abbott, he used to tell me that the first song that he ever remembered me singing, and that was when I had to have been six, seven years old, was Amazing Grace. I really don't know how and why I started singing. I love the song, and I would sing it every night uh, because I just enjoy singing it, and the people enjoy hearing it, and I let them sing, and they enjoy singing, you know, get loud and sing it, and there's something good about it. I'm sure it's a combination of all the things, saying the words, feeling the music, uh, the melody has that uh, universal appeal. Love that melody. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound 
that say a wretch like me I once was lost but now I'm found I was blind but now I see Well, when I started traveling, usually I played Saturday nights. There's no way to get up and find a church. I really believe that we walk around in our church every day anyway. It's not a building. You don't really have to go to the same one every Sunday morning. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound. Honestly, I think I, I sing it because it feels good to sing it, and the audience likes to sing, too. Uh, the fact that it's a religious song is just kind of secondary, I think. But that song is just uh, one of those magic songs. That once you, you don't have to be a Christian, you don't have to be anything to like that song. And grace my fear really how precious that grace appeared the hour that I first The Great and Wonderful Willie Nelson. That story was produced by Michael May. Willie Nelson, now age 85, is on tour across the country, and you can find out where and when through studio360.org. By any chance, do you have an aha moment? Some song or novel or video game or whatever that changed your life trajectory or your way of looking at existence? If so, tell us about it in an email or a voice memo and send that to incoming at studio360.org. Next up, Dwight Yoakam and his band are going to play a few songs. Three pairs of glasses Three pairs of shades Hi, this is Dwight Yoakam. You're listening to Studio 360 from PRI. Stay with us. Stay with us. 
stay with us. Now I've blown the ending. Let me do it again. I'll pick it up. There you go. Three madness love. Three pairs of wishes for all that you want. That means where you Studio 360. Today on Studio 360, we're all about country music and talking to some genuine legends. As far as country superstars go, Dwight Yoakam was always one that doesn't fit. The cool, mischievous, mysterious dude amid the interchangeable guys and girls next door. He settled in Los Angeles instead of Nashville. He always played and collaborated with rock and rollers. And by modern mainstream country standards, Dwight Yoakam's version of the music is unorthodox because it's what used to be orthodox. Now his guitar skin I spoke with Yoakam in 2013. He'd just released his first album of new songs in seven years, and like so much in his career, it was full of surprises, including two songs produced by Beck. And the album's name, Three Pairs, is a reference to John Lennon, who was once famously photographed wearing three pairs of sunglasses. Not the wire rim ones. This is footage from uh, the documentary, The Material World, uh, Living the Material World, that Scorsese did of Harrison. And they cut to Lennon, and Lennon was in full kind of pop mod revolver period kind of wardrobe with these big rapper, and not the later shot that everybody's familiar with. He's wearing kind of the 70s wire rim glasses. These were these huge kind of movie star frames. And he had three stacked on top, of it, and he was looking at various angles to the cameraman going, I see you here, I see you there. And I said, there you are, huh, John, three pairs of glasses. And I started just to repeat that line, three pairs of glasses, and got up, and I w- wrote it as I walked across. Really? Uh, yeah. Uh, the album seems particularly less straight-ahead country than some of your other albums. For most of these songs, the first few bars you can listen to, and you, you don't think, oh, that, didn't, that doesn't sound like a country song yet. Mm-hmm. Was that an effort with this project from the beginning? No, it's just an expression of the music I hear going on in my head and wanted to play. I mean, there, the first three albums to me were explaining why I was who I was, where I came from. I was born in Appalachia and I moved out I've of I've been to, to Pikeville, Ohio. Kentucky, by the way. You've been to Pikeville? I have. In the coal business? Not in the coal business. <laughs> Writing about the Hatfields and the McCoys at the time. Well, that would be that business there, too. Yeah, yeah the Hatfields and McCoys were a phenomenon of Pike County and Logan County, West Virginia, that crossed the border back yep. and forth. And uh, there's a great reference to that whole subculture there in, in Outliers, Malcolm Gladwell's great book. And, and the observations they made were really interesting about that. But being born really begat from the culture of uh, non-agrarian geographic locations where you had to engage in herding, you know, livestock as your means of existence. And it gave forth to feuding cultures, you know, because there was uh-huh. no tolerance for any kind of cross-eyed looks. Gotcha. <laughs> Man can't really steal your field of wheat overnight, but he can sure take a lot of sheep, cattle. But there's on this record, there are also 
In addition to these sort of rock and rolly songs, there are some open emotional ballads. Yeah, I mean, there's a piano ballad. I, you know, I didn't go into this. This is purely, I feel free of genre boundaries. I, I, I don't think musicians think of themselves as limited by categorization. Right. Term, a lot know. of good musicians don't. It's just my version of these songs. Let's hear one. Okay. I feel self-conscious myself because my rambling tangents have already left us somewhere discussing too much information about feuding cultures in the southeast part of it. It's good. <laughs> it's good. I like it. <laughs> but that has everything to do with heart like mine, actually. And that could be a theme for the Hatfields and McCoys. Boys, I saw you coming. Woo! Lord, I saw you coming up the holler. <laughs> anyway, here we go. Good.
That was Dwight Yoakam and his band performing A Heart Like Mine from his new album, Three Pairs. God, I love that. Oh, well, thank you. And thank that, you. that was one of the songs you did with your Beck. your man Beck, who also a, a non-respecter. My of, main Beck. <laughs> non-respecter of genre boundaries. No, he's completely free of being tethered to anything that would be limiting in any way. You know, and the great thing about Beck, you know, he's extremely literate musically. But he is wildly sensitive to not interfering with anything that's intuitive. How did you come to work with him? Uh, we had bumped into each other over the years at the odd event, and I just cold called him. And <laughs> so he came by my office. We sat down for about four hours and you know talked about L.A. and you know there's you, when you mentioned that musical direction. L.A. and California had a lot to do with that, obviously, too, because there's always been a great commingling going back even to the 30s and the Dust Bowl collision of culture that happened. When all those Okies came out to yeah, Southern California? Yeah, the Okies, Arkies, Texans. It's, it's blew into California. And I think right. it created a culture that it certainly beget the hybrid forms of country music right. that became uh, the From the Flying Burrito Brothers yeah, and the Birds. Yeah, sure, the Birds, and, originally. Yeah. I mean, to me, that's the first country rock band, that Sweethearts album. Yep. When you were young, you had an album in 1987 called Hillbilly Deluxe. Let's play a track from that, Read and Write and Route 23. Have you ever seen them put the kids in the car after work on Friday night? Pull up in a holler about 2 a.m. the lights still burning bright. With those mountain folks set up that late to hold those little grandkids in their arms, in their arms. Yet I'm proud to say that I've been blessed. Now, you were a Southern Californian by the time you recorded that. What is it? It's when you're removed from the environment right. that you write about. You, right. you it's tend- easier to celebrate something once well, you're no longer to, living or, there, or, right? Or to articulate more acutely what you what you came from. And I, I realized how fortunate I was to have been born into that culture in rural Appalachia. And, and the uniqueness of it was much more acute living a couple of, by the time I'd been in L, in Southern California for a couple of years, working on a loading dock and driving delivery trucks, I, you know, had a lot of time to kind of contemplate where I'd come from, what that was all about, you know, the hollers and the hills in the 60s, 50s and 60s, the migration out of there was to get jobs in, in Detroit. Route 23 literally is a U.S. route. We ran all the way down through the Appalachian chain and into Florida, but all the way to Detroit. The brunt of the joke was, what are the three R's that are taught in Kentucky schools? Reading, writing, and Route 23 there North. So I thought, I'm going to turn that joke on its ear for my mother and uh, my uncles and everybody that suffered greater consequences of that kind of cultural uh, bigotry. Bigotry. Can we hear another new song? Sure, absolutely. What, is your, what should we do, guys? Title song. Yes, do that. Why not do the title song?
gives happiness All I hope to give is nothing less than one or two more Three beds of glasses Three beds of shade Three beds of other things All there in space Three beds of shoeless feet Three mindless thoughts That is Dwight Yoakam and his band performing live the title track of his new album, Three Pairs, here in Studio 360. The title track, you know, the reason it became so evident that it was the title of the album is because it's about the nonsense of joy. You know, joy is what the album was about for, for me and I hope for the band and all of us that made it and and. I experienced great joy in performing it. You have been a joyful presence here today. Well, thank you. We're not going to have to wait another seven years to get another album of new songs, are we? I hope not, but I don't know. <laughs> I can't make no promises to a fellow like you sitting in a room like this at a time like this. I don't know what I'll be doing. Well, we didn't have to wait seven years. Dwight Yoakam has released two albums since then, most recently one with a title from a certain 57-year-old sitcom theme song, Swimming Pools, Movie Stars. And Dwight Yoakam, too, is currently on tour all over America. Dwight Yoakam and I talked a little while longer, actually quite a lot longer. I asked him about his crossover success and He wound up telling me a story about this one wild night at one of his shows involving flying bowls of beer and a punk rock kid and somersaulting security guards. I highly recommend listening, which you can do at Studio360.org, where you can also watch a video of Dwight performing here in Studio 360. And that's it for this episode. Before we go, I wanted to remind you that you can follow us on Twitter and thereby be among the first to know what we're working on and thinking about over here. And where you can tweet at us when we make you feel feelings. As listener Brian McDaniel did, tweeting us about our recent segment concerning the 90s Nickelodeon animated series, Doug. Sobbing, Brian wrote on Twitter, Studio 360 did an episode on the greatest show of all time, Doug, and it's good. Studio 360 is a production of PRI, Public Radio International, in association with Slate. Our executive producer is... Jocelyn Gonzalez. Our senior editor is... Andrew Adam Newman. Our sound engineer is... Sandra Lopez-Monsalve. Our producers are... Evan Chung. Lauren Hansen. Sam Kim. Zoe Saunders. Tommy Bazarian. Our production assistant is Morgan Flannery. And I'm Kurt Anderson. Certainly no natural beauties. Thank you very much for listening.
RI Public Radio International. There's no way to formulate, okay, we're going to make a generational movie about these crazy kids today. Next time on Studio 360, Reality Bites, 25 years later. I guess like she says in the movie. I know it wasn't going to end world hunger, you know, save the planet, but it just meant something to me. That's next on Studio 360. Can you turn this up, please? Please? You won't be sorry. Oh, my God. 